rage against the ropes. Hustling for a living and a living for dope. On the razor's edge against the ropes, hustling for a living and living for dope. This is Joe Boyd's A to Z, balancing precariously on the letter R. I need loud music to keep quiet. Set a piece of ass for a piece of mind. The group defunct hit the downtown New York scene at the beginning of the 80s like a hurricane. Or at least I thought so. I first heard them in a derelict brownstone on West 23rd Street, which had been squatted by a Hungarian theater company. I brought Manfred Eicher, head of ECM Records, down to see them while he was in town recording Steve Reich at Carnegie Hall. Manfred was impressed, and we talked about a deal for me to produce Defunct for ECM. But eventually, over a very nice Italian meal in Munich, Manfred said, Joe, you should have your own label, really. And that is how Hannibal Records was born. Our first release, Hannibal 1301, was Defunct's LP. The group was born out of the intense downtown New York scene at that time. Every Sunday afternoon, the La Mama Theater, a venerable outpost of the avant-garde, would have a free jazz jam. One of the more curious characters of that scene was a young Midwestern sax player named James Siegfried, who changed his name first to James Chance when he formed the group The Contortions. Then he started something called James White and the Blacks, the blacks being the African-American avant-garde players he recruited in those Sunday afternoon jam sessions at La Mama. Monday nights, they would play at Max's Kansas City, the hippest bar in New York. If you see him, pass your back, steer the wheel of a faster car with one hand on the thigh of a nicer chick than what you can afford. Make them dance, make them dance. Which brings us to an extended family from the town of Bowie, Maryland. It seems that after the Civil War, although the victorious Union government almost completely failed in their promise to assist former slaves to get on their feet, one black family did receive title to a large Maryland farm. To this day, this land is in the hands of a family named Bowie after the town. Every July, they have a huge get-together for all the uncles, aunts, and cousins scattered around America. One branch of this family grew up in St. Louis. The patriarch was a beloved and respected teacher in the city's school system, and he instilled a passionate love of music in his three sons. The eldest was Lester Bowie, who became a great jazz trumpeter pioneer with a sense of humor and a unique feeling for the history of African-American culture. Another brother, Byron, played sax and became musical director for, among others, the Dells and Natalie Cole. Byron is also an avid skier and has master points in bridge. He tells stories of playing in tournaments against Omar Sharif. In other words, 
The Bowies are a high-achieving, middle-class American family. But combining those qualities with blackness can be tricky, as we see every day in the news. You can be a lawyer or a stockbroker, but if you're black, getting at the very least your ass kicked by racist policemen is part of the African-American experience. The youngest of the three brothers, Joe, plays trombone. He married a lawyer who worked for the New York City District Attorney's Office, but had difficulties reconciling the advantages of his upbringing with his color. He gravitated to the streets and took on the mantle of family rebel. Sundays in New York, he would often end up at the La Mama, jamming with other devotees of free-form, rebellious jazz. Recruited to be one of James White's blacks, he remembers looking out at the standing-room-only crowd of white kids at Max's and becoming disgusted by James Seagreed's jive-ass arrangements and faux-funkiness. Turning to a couple of the other blacks, he said, We can come up with something better than this shit. You are feeling me with your love In your hotel room of permanent disorder Grab for help or open air Close the window and I pass out Between your walls in your arms He knew a Hungarian guy who was part of that company of defected thespians from Budapest who were running the squat theater. Janos Gott not only agreed to give Bowie the nominally dark Sunday night slot there, but he volunteered to help Joe write some material. For a week before the first rehearsals, Janos and Joe holed up in an empty room on the Lower East Side and composed the entire canon of Defunct's classic songs. I made love to a photocopy Scott spoke bad English, but he wrote all the lyrics. I'm tempted to compare these songs to the fruits of other great writers for whom English was a second language. Vladimir Nabokov, Joseph Conrad, but that would be a pretty big stretch. But the words are unique. There's nothing like them in the history of funk and R&B. <laughs> Defunct had its moments of triumph in London, in Paris, where they played the great and now tragic club, the Bataclan. But they were always hampered by Joe's problems with heroin. His wife would sometimes have to bail him out after a bust on Rivington Street. Now, the hippest place in New York, but in the early 80s, a den of shooting galleries. After that intense first week, Joe and Janos, each with their own addiction problems in those days, wrote only one more song together. Get the works for a dollar. Get water from a fire hydrant. Heat it up with a match and screw off coke. Bottle cap laying on the street. Dancing to the beat of my heart. Breathing. Do 
use the filter of your cigarette for cotton. Tie your arm with your shoestring. Watch it all dissolve in you. And watch yourself dissolving in the doorway of a vacant building. Listening to the sounds the cars make. Indifferent to what's going on. Dreaming. Many defunct alumni went on to great things. Vernon Reed, for example, formed Living Color, and Melvin Gibbs has gone on to become one of the world's great bass players. Joe is clean and straight now and continues to take defunct on tour, mostly in Europe. But he's never written songs like those he created with Janosch in one week before the group ever played a note. My favorite moment with them came in London, Taking advantage of Lester being in town for the jazz festival, we recorded a 12-inch single at Sound Techniques, the studio where I'd made Nick Drake, Fairport Convention, Incredible String Band records. I was also heeding Byron Bowie's advice. Defunct's regular drummer was an excellent Billy Cobham devotee called Kenny Martin from Queens, but he couldn't make this trip. His deputy was Richard Harrison from Charleston, South Carolina. Byron had told me again and again, never use a drummer from north of the Mason-Dixon line. Only Southerners, he said, have that funk in their wrists. So with Lester chiming in on trumpet and our Carolina drummer keeping things deep in the pocket, we recorded The Razor's Edge, the last ever Gat Bowie composition. It's time to kill, the kicks to kill time. Get in, all my time. To wake up and a down to sleep. Try not to think, not feeling nothing, not feeling nothing. Janos Gat now runs an art gallery on the Lower East Side, around the corner from Rivington Street. The girl who used to sell the tickets at the Squat Theater was Esther Ballant, now famous as the enigmatic character in Jim Jarmusch's Stranger Than Paradise. The wonderful cover of the defunct album was created by Tibor Kalman, a great designer who was a refugee from Hungary. Not only did he create the Hannibal logo in our first half-dozen covers, but also the Remain in Light cover for Talking Heads, and he designed the Colors magazine for Benetton. He revolutionized American design in the 80s and 90s, before dying tragically young from cancer in 1999. By the end of the 90s, Lester Bowie, as well, had died of heart failure. I need loud music to keep quiet. Set a piece of ass for a piece of mind. This is Joe Boyd's A to Z sliding safely off the razor's edge and into the sunset. But I won't give in 